Welcome to This Is How, an ACLU of North Carolina podcast that unlocks the untold stories of justice, freedom, and activism from right here in North Carolina. We will explore how we can make change happen one voice at a time. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered to create a fairer future for all. And now, here's our host. Hi, everyone. I'm Calvin from the ACLU of North Carolina. My pronouns are he, him, his. Thanks for joining us on This Is How. Transgender history and Black history are entwined in a way that shouldn't and can't be overlooked. There are countless Black transgender people who have historically advocated for both transgender and queer rights, as well as for racial equality and justice. Presently, there are even more Black and Brown trans and non-binary folks doing this work. And without them, equality would not be what it is today. Black trans people are subjected to higher unemployment rates, as well as increased likelihood of experiencing homelessness, HIV, discrimination, and violence. In 2020, the Human Rights Campaign found that a record number of violent, fatal incidences occurred against transgender and gender nonconforming people, with the majority of those numbers disproportionately being Black trans women. Being a transgender or non-binary person of color increases the likelihood of stigma and experiences of systemic racism and transphobia combined. Along with this, trans people of color experience increased mental health concerns, reporting higher rates of depression, chronic stress, and suicidal ideations. It's important to understand the complexities of the intersection between race and gender identity in order to focus on and uplift the voices of black and brown transgender and non-binary people. Transgender and non-binary people of color deserve to tell their stories and to be not only included, but actively centered in the movement that they began. Liberation for black and brown communities includes liberation for trans and non-binary people of color. In today's episode, we are discussing the intersection of blackness and transness with King Sage, a gender fluffy flamboyant trans man hailing from Detroit. King's pronouns are he, him, and he's a multifaceted interdisciplinary storyteller, artist, and teacher known for weaving imaginative narratives that foster innovative understanding and creative expression. His creative journey, rooted in the vibrant Detroit youth slam poetry scene, blossomed into a versatile artistic career through his involvement as a performer, director, and producer. It was further cultivated during his time as a scholar in the ninth cohort of the University of Wisconsin-Madison's OMAI First Wave Scholarship Program, with profound influence from the supportive Black, trans, and queer community. King, thank you for joining us today. We are so excited to have you here with us. I would love if you're willing to just kind of share what brought you to the the activism space for trans and non-binary people? Yeah, I feel like my movement history is a bit lengthy. Um, That's okay. First coming into like Black feminist thinking and rhetoric and theory when I was in high school, like was very deeply immersed in Black feminist Twitter. And that kind of like really shaped a lot of my worldview mm-hmm. from a pretty early age. And... Yeah, I was in high school at the time when Trayvon Martin was killed. And so a lot of my like self-realization is really rooted in the arrival, if you will, of Black Lives Matter as a movement, as a slogan, as a campaign. And a lot of the Black feminist thinkers that were grounding that work. And yeah, I didn't really come into my queerness fully until college and then transness also when I was in college and 
around that time, it was more, I would say, kind of divorced from movement. Um, maybe not entirely, but for me, like, it wasn't something that I thought about as, like, a, a political identity or a political um, aspect of myself. A lot of my organizing was still very much in the realm of the movement for Black lives and mm -hmm. Black liberation and also a little bit of sexual assault, domestic violence prevention work. But I did meet my first like black trans person when I was in college and they changed my life. Like it felt like, I often say this, like sometimes it feels like you are like you meet people and they kind of like open a door in mm -hmm. you. And they're like, did you know you could go in here? And you're like, I didn't know we could go in there. Oh my God, I was going there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we went in the room and they were like, you can play in here. You can decorate however you want. You can say who you are in this space and like, and I'll believe you. And I'm like, really? For real? Like, I just say it one day. I just wake up and then you'll be like, okay, cool. That's who you are now. Because <laughs> that's very much how they were. Yeah. Uh, my friend Quasia, um, they were very much from the camp of like gender of the day. So whatever they woke up, however they woke up, they like fully radically consented to who their body was in that moment, in that outfit, in that time. And it was the most revolutionary shit I had ever <laughs> encountered. I was like, whoa, y'all do stuff different over here. And... <laughs> It took some time, but mm -hmm. I kind of like, yeah, surrendered um, to these parts of myself that I think had gotten covered up throughout mm -hmm. childhood and performing the very high femme person that I once was, right? And very shortly thereafter, I decided to leave college because I was attending a university that was violent in all the ways, right? That I just didn't feel supported in mm -hmm. and found myself in the South and found out about this black trans led organization and film fellowship program at the time was named House of Pentacles and now has renamed to Comfrey Films. And it was the first space that I had encountered that was like for and by black trans people. And their work as artists was also like deeply and intrinsically tied to their work as organizers and movement folks, like folks that were like really moving in a way that was advocating for the liberation of black people, black, brown, black and brown people. Mm -hmm. And I was living in New Orleans at the time. And when I found out about House of Pentacles, I slid in the DMs on Instagram <laughs> real fast. And was like, I need to be a part of this work, whatever I can do. And from there, it's just like the rest is history. Like I moved to Durham as soon as I came here. Like I came here on a weekend um, and had so much deja vu. I was like, well, I've been here before. This is amazing. And off vibes moved, <laughs> like, like decided that that weekend that I was moving. And within a month I was here and Amazing. deeply in, in really rooted in this work and um, became a, a film trainer in that film fellowship program and a social media coordinator with House of Pentacles. And yeah, we went to the National March on Washington that happened in October of 2019 where a ton of trans folks and allies like marched on Washington to like advocate for ourselves mm -hmm. to like, yeah, be in, and be in a space of self-advocacy. And I think that's when things really started to kind of click into place. I had never seen that many trans people, period, in the same place at once. And I cried and cried and cried and cried. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Life-changing. And I feel like since then, yeah, I've found myself in various movement spaces where my blackness and my transness don't feel connected. Mm. And I think it's because of the work that I was in with House of Pentacles, being comrades with folks for about three or four years, like 
that is why I take, you know, my gender shit. That's what I call it. My gender <laughs> shit. <laughs> and I talk it. I talk my gender shit in any space yeah. that I'm in because of the ways that it was proven possible to me that like it's possible to be both black and trans and about liberation of all our people. Before we knew that the pandemic was going to be a thing, House of Pentacles was mounting um, a program, a campaign called Campaign Thrive. And Thrive stood for a trans holistic resurgence, intervene, vision, and empower. And it was a movement that was being positioned to interrupt the violence that Black trans women and femmes were experiencing in the U.S. South and to increase protections for all Black trans folks. Like we were in a space at the end of 2019 kind of talking about how do we explicitly politicize HOP's work. HOP, it's short for House of Pentacles. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, as we were having those conversations, we were like, okay, we need to like mobilize. We need to do a thing. And so that's where kind of out of those conversations, we gathered um, Campaign Thrive and yeah, we, we did the, the first phase of that launch like right before the pandemic hit. And so mm. it happened and then our work pivoted super yeah. fast to like rapid response, mutual aid, mm. where we were responding to the immediate needs of black and brown folks in and around Durham who were like, yeah, struggling with houselessness, really needing food, emergency supplies, things like that. Folks like losing their jobs left and right. And yeah, we got grant funding to be able to disperse and redistribute. And I was doing that work. And that's that's a that's a wild ride emotionally, mentally. And the fatigue set in in a very serious way. And I took a step back from that work for a while. We all kind of did. Yeah. Yeah, we all kind of did. To be able to focus on like, yeah, what, what it felt like was also possible in mm -hmm. terms of like what the lockdown portion of the pandemic, which is still ongoing, present with us today, um, was offering us was like this space to like turn inward and really right. like really deepen um, connection to self and spirit and community and things like that. That's a very long-winded answer, but it was fabulous. The, the topic of intersectionality, which I think is just so often talked about, but not actually talked about, you know, people are like, oh, intersectionality, blah, blah, blah. But then they don't actually sit down and, and think about what that actually means. Right. And so I really liked you touching on that and, and the intersectionality between blackness and transness and how important that is in terms of identity and movements. A lot of research that I've read has centered white trans people almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, that, that really needs to change because there's, there's a whole experience that's being neglected, you know, and, and a whole group of people that the outside world is not understanding as well as they should. Period. And I think it, it kind of like... I think codifies these ideas that we can further dehumanize folks mm -hmm. because we don't understand, right? So you can ask a bunch of wild ass questions. Right. Asking wild ass questions, talking underneath people's clothes because you don't believe them to be human. Right. Right. And so it's yeah. like you feel privy to this information or you're like, well, I, I just didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> that don't mean like yeah. you don't know me. That don't mean that you can talk underneath my clothes. That's crazy. Right. Um, <laughs> And I think to your point around like the highlighting of like white trans experiences, I think often too in black communities, something that I've heard is like transness or queerness being painted as a white thing, mm -hmm. right? Like, and that's not true. Like right. we know that um, historically black communities that are indigenous to Africa, like have 
revered queer and trans bodies, and this is like history that we are very much like generations removed from, but like revered queer and trans bodies as like spiritual leaders. Mm-hmm. And I think the disconnect from that ancestry, the disconnect from these truths, right, that black and brown queer and trans folks are not only like necessary parts of our communities, but like have had very serious and very intentional roles within those communities for generations. And I think it is the work of white supremacy to kind of divorce folks from that knowledge Mm -hmm. and to then placate back to us that us reclaiming right ourselves in this way um, whether that be as a queer and trans person or as I don't know some other space of reclamation that like you might do as a black or brown person knowing that gender is the construct that is a product of white supremacy heteronormativity is a pro- is a construct that is a product of white, white supremacy right like reclaiming yourself back from these narratives I think is often retold to us as like oh you're just trying to I don't know, associate or disassociate from blackness, associate yourself closest, closer to whiteness. And I think there's a very like, yeah, I don't know, tense piece around what you alluded to there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and do you think that part of that is also to try to undermine the empowerment you might feel being able to have like empowerment that you might come into if you were to have a strong cohesion of your blackness and your transness at once. I mean, real talk. Like, (laughs) I would be so powerful. Like, if I, in spaces, felt that I had just as much right to my blackness as my transness at the same time. Mm -hmm. When I think about movement spaces that I exist in now, while those spaces are really trying and are often, like, led by black trans folks, but black trans folks that are passing in a certain way that, like, Mm. there's not necessarily, like, these more public conversations around, like, we have a black trans leader in this space, and what does this mean for how we are committed to amplifying black trans voices in a space where like 90% of the room is full of like black cis folks, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And black cis folks that are like not necessarily in movement in the way that we think about movement as like an intellectual process, right? Folks who have had access to academia and theory and da 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 It's like, no, these are people that are just like regular, regular black people living their lives in community that also have a right to their blackness, a right to say what and amplify their own voices in spaces about like what they need for their communities. That's the intention of a particular movement space that I'm a part of right now. And I think about how in that space, my transness is something that is almost like, is like it doesn't exist, right? Mm. Like I kind of have to in that space just kind of be black and that is my, my point of connection to the work in that room. And it's really hard to like be misgendered constantly by like folks that you're sitting across from and you're having conversations about like your interconnected histories right. or your interconnected lived lived experiences as black people and then they she her and you out the room mm. and it's just like whoa yeah the 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 disassociation with that one <laughs> the way that like my brain is like I'm trying so hard to activate my like I don't know. I'm just seeing like fucking um, Natoro, yeah. <laughs> like trying to like <laughs> get them closer together. But like, it's really hard work. It's yeah. really hard work to like realize, to like look up and be in a room and be like, 
And this is making me think of a question that a friend asked me recently. They were like, okay, so what would you choose? Like if you had to make a choice, would you choose to be with white folks and have your queerness and your transness affirmed? Or would you choose to be with black folks and have like your racial identity affirmed and amplified in something that like somewhere where you could feel at home? And that is the rudest question somebody has ever asked me. This is also a black trans person. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's so disrespectful. Why would you? I would not choose either. I would like, right. I would choose or. Thank you. Right. <laughs> like, whoa. And I feel like, but that's like super real. It's a mm -hmm. real last question because I think it's something that black trans people, brown trans people, we navigate all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Like having to realize that like a lot of the spaces mainstream spaces that are created for trans and queer folks are often predominantly white. And it's really uncomfortable to be in those spaces and realize like there is rampant racism happening mm -hmm. in this room yeah. in a way that like, I don't always want to have to be the one to talk about. I'm tired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then in the same way, like in, in, in rooms where it is intended to be a safe space for black indigenous people of color, those BIPOC spaces, right, like, that are often, like, cis het dominated spaces. It's like, how do we also make room for the fact that there are folks in the room who are not cis nor straight? And I don't have the answers to these questions. I just think, I just know that as someone who is, like, riding the ways of, like, both of these identities, I have felt safest in spaces where people are both Black and trans. And have, have, I mean, this, like, like vice script onto those spaces. Yeah. And, like, really, like, decided, like, through whatever, come hell or high water, we're going to make it work. Mm -hmm. It would be lovely to, like, figure out a way to, like, exist in more community spaces comfortably. And then at the end of the day, I have to recognize that that's not always my work to do as, as much as I want to, like, yeah, claim all Black people as my kin or claim all queer and trans folks as my kin. The reality is that it's not always possible. It's yeah. not always safe. Yeah. No, yeah. that's a great point. Did you notice that being a thing outside of Durham as well? Or was that something that became more of a, a thing when you were inside Durham and, and working through activist movements here? That's a great question. Um, I think when I was still in school and I had come out as trans, and my version of coming out as trans was like, don't gender me ever mm -hmm. don't look in my direction <laughs> i was like uh just get it off just ew like right. i was like dismantle all of it and just don't even think about me as gender yeah i would say like when people would be like what's your gender identity and people would be like i'm a trans man or i'm non-binary i'm this that, that, that i would be like i'm gender empty mm. empty <laughs> i have no more gender <laughs> so i think it was really hard for people in my close intimate circles who were like friends of mine for me to like one come at it in a, a way that was like I was abrasive I was giving sandpaper <laughs> I was like don't even talk to me and left no room for conversations because the black trans people that I was getting to know were like oh there's no conversation that we're having here this is just what it is mm -hmm. and if you can't be with me in this moment then like we're just not together yeah and I was like I love that Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't have to explain myself as somebody who had grew up having to explain themselves. Right. <laughs> I'm like, shit. <laughs> um, wow. We don't have to explain shit. Yeah. So when I gave the like the very much stiff arm to the, the, the woman that I very much was, <laughs> I, I think it made it really difficult to be in rooms with people, black people specifically that knew me in a way where like, 
Because when I came to school, I was giving high femme, like very much high femme. And I still am, you know. I like my I like my manhood to come with a little boom cack, yeah, you know. Like, like this yeah. like just I'm very flamboyant, right? Yeah. Like and it's very much still a part of me. And I think when I first came into my transness, it was very much like I can't do any of it. Mm-hmm. All of it felt like a performance in a way that was trying to like please people outside of me. And so when I was like, oh, I'm putting all of that down, I'm divorcing all of this version of who I was and I'm starting over, I think a lot of folks that I was in movement with were like, I have no idea how to be in the same room with you, Mm. let alone be in relationship with you. And so I definitely started to notice it before I left school. And I think that's a part of what informed my leaving school, right? Like I made a really clip, like a clip, um, like a hard shift. Mm -hmm. And found even then before leaving that like I felt safest in rooms with other black folks who were queer or trans or like finding their queerness, finding their transness and not like trying to like shun it. Because I was around a lot of folks that were also trying to shun their own queerness Mm -hmm. um, for like religious trauma reasons and shit. What was really beautiful was that the more I leaned in the more community I found. So it's it's not like I was ever like wanting for more community. I think the spaces where I want for more community now are like, as I'm here in Durham and really trying to build a life for myself and realizing like that life that I want for myself, I want to also be in community with black people like that don't necessarily have to be queer or trans. Mm-hmm. Like I want, I want like more People and something that I've been really coming to admire is like everyday black people, like regular, regular folks that like don't need to like rely on their degree to talk about their experience of their own oppression. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of like classism and hierarchy inside of movement spaces. You know, this is not that <laughs> conversation, but I that's what I think. And yeah, I've been really missing like just the everydayness, regular, regular blackness. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that my desire for like a broader range of community, more folks to just like pull into the kindred family that I want to build um, is making me notice, I think, more of the spaces where I feel like tightened up or like less welcome. Because yeah, Durham also is like this big. Right. There's like, there's five of us, right? Like, And so it, I think it gets really, really hard like when conflict happens or mm. when like you're trying to move through relationships having Mm -hmm. that like goes beyond friendship things that play in the world of intimacy and romance and things like that I think it gets really hard when the space feels so limited Mm -hmm. so I think that's maybe why I'm I'm noticing it more now because I'm like wow like it's two of it's like five (laughs) like it's a really small it's a really small community and I want more from my relationships and so I think there's a desire to like seek out new spaces to to find relationships and and deepen with folks. For people who are, I guess, newer to activism, Mm -hmm. both, you know, I've I've noticed also in queer spaces, it's predominantly white Mm -hmm. and the black rights movement, predominantly black, you know, there, and there isn't a lot of overlap. You know, for someone who who might be listening, who's interested in, in becoming involved in trans rights, 
and the movement for trans rights and trans equality, what would you recommend in terms of being intersectional and inclusive and making sure that people of color have a space and have the opportunity to speak about their experiences as trans people and also like trans people of color? I would seek out, like I think I would tell those folks to seek out organizations or spaces, even if they're not already 501c3 affiliated or whatever, like spaces that already exist where black folks, brown folks have gathered to honor their queerness and transness because those spaces do exist, right? Like they're not impossible to find. I think it's interesting to like weather that tension of like, queer spaces are predominantly white. And then I think about this queer spaces I be in and I'm like, ah, no, that's not true. But it's because I'm not white, right? And so I think, um, I do wonder who that question is for. Um, like, is this for like white folks who are newer to activism or is it black folks that are newer to activism that are like actively in black movement spaces and want more queer and trans folks in their, in their realm? I'm or, gonna be fully transparent yeah. and say that it's probably white people asking that question yeah. of, how do I make space for black people because, or like black trans people because they haven't had to worry about that in the past. Yeah. I would say donate to Comfrey Films, you feel what I'm saying? This really dope black trans production company that's committed to telling black trans stories. Love that. I would say- Do you have uh, a website for that? Yes, comfreyfilms.org. Comfrey is spelled C-O-M-F-R-E-Y. Okay, perfect. Comfrey. Comfrey is like a plant. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I would say donate to them. I would say donate to Black Trans Media, right? Um, and I'm specifically naming like media spaces because that's a big part of my art, right? Mm-hmm. Um, film, photography, performance. And I also think that it's important to donate to those media spaces that Black trans folks are running themselves because it helps to shift the narrative, right? That like Black trans people don't exist. Right. Or that like these stories haven't been existing for millennia. Right. Um and I think, yeah, it could aid white folks in like, yeah, that desire to amplify voices is what I hear you asking. Like, how do I amplify the voices of black and brown folks? Feels like it's more important than trying to welcome them into your space. Mm. To me, to me. Now, somebody else might think that's like different. And I also agree that like, yeah, we should probably find a way to like coexist and be right. together and like do that. And I do think about like the sacredness of the spaces that Mm -hmm. I've known where it's only black trans folks present. I'm also thinking about, yeah, the power of intergenerational and multicultural spaces too. And I think that like, yeah, if a white person is in this moment, like, hmm, how do I welcome in more black and brown trans folks to my space? Or how do I make sure that I'm not like homogenizing them out of this movement that I'm like calling myself a leader inside of, I would say that like you need to, yeah, begin to reach out to black trans people who are doing this work. Mm -hmm. Because I think there are a lot of black trans people present in spaces like, yeah, Durham Beyond Policing and Song and BYP 100 and things like that, which are like more local spaces to where Mm -hmm. we are right now. But even on a national level, I'm sure there are like black trans folks present in movement spaces and like tirelessly engaging in self-advocacy and then also like making moves to be in more leadership spaces. So I think mm-hmm. as a white person, I would I would want to implore folks to like go beyond the like, the question of like, yeah, how can I 
bring these folks closer to me and be like, how can I move closer to what they're doing already? That makes total sense. I, th- I think that you making that distinction is is really important. Yeah. Um, because I think it's it's very easy to say, oh, I want to uplift these voices, but I actually don't want them to have any part in what I'm doing. Right. Um, and that can be very harmful and, and isolating. And honestly, uh, like you were talking about dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, oh, like we're we're giving you like a space, but not our space. Right, because ain't nobody trying to be like your token either. Right. I think that's something I've been really noticing in my life is just like, ooh, I'm so tired of being the token black trans person. Mm-hmm. And whether that's like I'm the token black person or I'm the token trans person or I'm the token black trans person, that's that's dead. Yeah. In so many ways. And it's 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 exhausting mentally, physically, emotionally, in like ways that I don't think white folks will ever be able to understand the mental gymnastics that you have to do in order to like be somebody's token in this space. Whether you realize it in the moment that you're being asked to do something or you realize it later, you're like, damn, okay, here are all the ways that I'm being used to like create a facade Mm. of like what work is being done here. Right. But it's not really, you know, I think like when I ask myself the question, like how can white folks show up for me in this moment? I'm like, you could pay a bill. Mm-hmm. You could like extend some of your privilege to like get me in the door of spaces where I'm trying to be, right? Like if I'm going to become a token in a space, let it be because I chose to be there. Absolutely. You know, I actively sought out somewhere where I'm like, my presence needs to be in that space. And what I need is your foot that's already in the door to like kind of hold it open for me so I can walk through, right? Like when I think about that as like a liberatory practice. That's what I think about, right? And I think this interesting space that we're in right now is like kind of considering what I'm what I'm imagining, right, is like white folks who already are leading spaces, whether that's like they have a movement group or an online platform or whatever it is, they are a leader in some kind of way, shape or form and find themselves only surrounded by white folks. I'm like, that's kind of a choice that you made. Whether you made it consciously or unconsciously, that that is like something that happened at some point. You made a choice that like, oh, I called this person to be my sound engineer and this is a white dude, right? When like, I know black trans folks that do sound. I know black trans folks that hold cameras. I know black trans right. folks that do X, Y, Z things. So it's like, it's about who you're already in community with too. That's who you end up tapping to like help bolster the work that you're doing. So if you're not in community with black people, if you're not in community with brown people, then you're not going to tap a black or a brown person to come be a part of your movement right. because you don't know them. Right. Yeah. And I think it's the same too. Like when I think about like black cis spaces, like if you're not in community with queer trans people, you didn't tap a queer trans person to come be a part of your space because you don't know them. Mm-hmm. It's really, really hard to like be amplifying the voice of someone in your movement work when you don't have relationship. And I think that's the yeah. thing. <laughs> that's really the things like that anchors so much of this. And I think this is why I love Durham because this is the space. This is the city where I learned this the most and where I'm constantly relearning. Like it is relationship that implores us, employs us, employs us, whatever. Relationship is <laughs> yeah, what right. is the catalyst for us to be able to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it is because we are in rela- in deep relationship with folks that we even think of who we think of when we like are setting our intentions for when we create something. Yeah. And so I'm even thinking about like, 
yeah, young folks, young queer and trans folks, it's really hard to like include them in our praxis if we're not in relationship with young queer and trans folks. It's really, really hard to like, to dream up spaces, to dream up avenues through which they can access healing and mm-hmm. playfulness and joy amid a world that is ridden with so much terror and so much like bullshit that they should not ever have to like consider at 15, 13, right. 12, like yeah. madness. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really hard to like think of or imagine or create what someone that young in this world context presently might need if you're not in relationship with someone that age. It's right. the same thing. Like you really need to have relationships with folks to even be able to approach a conversation in which you're saying, I want to help. Mm-hmm. You cannot help where you don't have a relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a fantastic point. And probably not thought about um, enough. Yeah. You know, and, and it made me think about the the legislators probably do not have any kind of relationship with queer and trans youth, especially queer and trans youth of color. At all. And so don't think about the consequences or the impacts specifically on queer and trans youth of color. Mm-hmm. We were speaking about access to healthcare mm-hmm. um, and how that's already an issue for black people in general. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much discrimination and disparity and treatment and lack of treatment mm-hmm. and having these laws like HB 808, which bans gender affirming care. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in your thoughts on how that adds to the layer of health disparity on race level and then adding on top gender because, you know, black women are disproportionately impacted like in terms of pregnancy and childbirth, you know? And so when you add on like a trans individual who is also a black individual, how that shows up and I'm just curious about your thoughts on like what that looks like or what concerns people who are not aware of those disparities might need to keep in mind. I think on the one hand, banning gender affirming care for trans youth directly impacts black and brown folks on the the notion that like black and brown people don't experience pain. Black and brown people don't experience the need for care, mm-hmm. period. That mm-hmm. is the belief yeah. that governs our our current medicine. All of the medicine. Yeah, <laughs> All of the Western yeah, medicine right. is, is rooted in that those beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I think, unfortunately, it would encourage a deepening or like a rooting down into the homophobia, the transphobia that folks are already, I mean, vilely spewing. Mm-hmm in so many different corners and sections of our world. Yeah, my own experiences as a young person, I cannot imagine like, one, going through like the intensity that is coming out at a young age, like before you've left the house and have that that safety of distance. I can't imagine having done something like that. Yeah. And then trusting enough to say, and on top of that, on top of letting you in to this like, deep space of my intimacy of like what is most precious to me I'm, I'm letting you in on this truth about me so that I can affirm it for myself adding another layer of being like and here is what I need to feel 
welcome, mm-hmm. to feel loved, to feel in my body, to feel empowered. And like being met with a that's not allowed kind of response, I immediately think about the, the impacts on folks' mental health. Yeah. That is all I've been thinking about when it yeah. comes to like these, these heinous and really insidious, like torturous bills. Right. It the, the the desire is to like to again, I think continue to like push forward these beliefs that folks are not human. And the reason why we call it gender affirming care is because that's what we know it is. We know mm-hmm. that it is a kind of care that affirms your not only your gender, but like your life. Right. You yeah. know? And it helps to carry you through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it helps to care for your body. Right. Like this is medicine. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think that people who and I, w- I would almost go as far to say people who are not trans at all, right? Regardless of their layer of allyship, like I don't know that. Like I wonder often how how people are able to really understand how hateful that is to tell a child who is like, and children are so self aware. First of all, let's just yeah. let's just get there, right? Yeah. Like I think so much of this is like people are like we're just trying to care for the children. <laughs> They don't know what they want and they're being influenced by all of the evil older trans people. It's a lie. It's a lie. Children are so self-aware. Yeah. We know this. Mm-hmm. I've I've heard some kids say some stuff to me where it's just like they are really like, this is who I am. And I'm like, oh, yes. Yeah, I love, love that for you. You know what yeah. I mean? Like so clear about who they are. We mm-hmm. are so clear about who we are when we arrive to this world. It is systems that try to tell us, that don't try to tell us, they tell us. Yeah. And they are really good at their job. They they tell us who we're supposed to be. They tell us, they condition us out of that, of that self-clarity, that awareness. So like, yeah, to be young and in this day and age and to be clear about who you are and what you need, and then to be to have it like affirmed in your government, they're like, oh no, we don't. Not only do we not believe that you know what you want, who you are, that you would have that emotional awareness, that self-clarity, whatever. I'm also going to tell you that I don't care. Even if you do, like, even if that were true, that's what it feels like. That's what these bills feel like. They're like, even if that is true, even if you know exactly who you are, what you need, what you want, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. I don't care. You can't have it. Because I said so. Because Mm -hmm. I'm committed to playing God or whatever, (laughs) whatever government thinks that they're doing. Like, I just, yeah. So that's, that's, that's a, that's a bit of it. It almost feels like a, like they're saying we don't deserve life, you know? Like Mm -hmm. it feels like it's like a, we don't, you don't deserve life. You don't deserve care. You don't deserve access to what there is proof. (laughs) There's so much proof. Like around like how much gender affirming care mm-hmm. helps and heals folks. And I think that, yeah, I'm getting emotional. Um, that's okay. okay. That's allowed. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I could probably chase that same thought for the next hour and a half. At the end of the day, black and brown folks, black and brown youth will be harmed. Mm-hmm. Because black and brown people are already treated as though they are not worthy of care. And so to pass a law, a bill, whatever, that says you are not worthy of care, it will only implore doctors to more doctors, nurses, whatever, whomever is a healthcare professional that like is not 
actively engaging with deconstructing the uses of white supremacy, mm-hmm. our government being one of them, mm-hmm. like it will only em- em- employ them further to like look at black and brown youth who are queer and trans or maybe don't even know or haven't arrived there yet on their journey. Maybe they have, I don't know, but like will only em- further like codify this idea that like you don't actually deserve care. Even if I know exactly what the care is, mm-hmm. I'm not going to give it to you. And therefore, I have permission to not see you as the full human being that you are before mm-hmm. me. Right? Like, yeah. it is more important that I deny your access because it, yeah, reaffirms power structures that don't, that were never made to serve you. Right? Those are the truths. Mm-hmm. Those are the truths of like what will happen, what has happened, what has been happening. It will just be a continuation of the same where we are. Yeah. Right. And so like, I don't know, I would I would really caution healthcare professionals on like following the rules. What are the rules that you mean? Taught? You know what I mean? I've been told some really wild shit by doctors that have nothing to do with my gender. Right. But like the way that they've engaged my body as just a black person. Right. Right, like divorced from this conversation. The way that doctors have engaged my body as a black person when I've been actively in pain. I mean, writhing, throwing up, all like, Mm. I mean, really experiencing some really just deeply painful stuff. Yeah. The ways that doctors have said to me, like, the most like throwaway sentences that made me feel like, Wow, I really just spent six hours in your waiting room just to get here for you to tell me like, oh, if we can't cut you open, we don't know what's going on, right? Like to to talk about my body in such a vile and visceral kind of way, like as if I'm not actively like sitting here experiencing pain. Right. And so I can only imagine, I think often also because like people often talk about or assume that the pain of like, transness, that the medicine that it is trying to be accessed by um, gender affirming care is like rendered as something that's like a psychological thing or like, you know, for so, I mean, history, like, right. We can look at history and see the ways that like trans people were like coded as crazy mm-hmm. or like violent because yeah. of the fact that they're like, oh, my inside doesn't match my outside. And like, mm-hmm. we should talk about this. And other people are like, that's insane. <laughs> you know, like, and I just, <laughs> I, yeah. So I, I can, I feel like med- Western medicine is already taught not to respect pain that they can't see. Mm. Whether it's like I'm experiencing this physical pain, I'm experiencing this emotional pain, I'm experiencing an emotional pain that is becoming a physical pain mm. and I can actively like trace and tell you exactly how that is happening. They don't, they're not taught to like move with that kind of care. And so I think when we're saying like H. P808 is banning gender affirming care. It's not only banning like access to medicine, like testosterone or estrogen or whatever, like in whatever ways folks might need that. They're banning like also this this third space of like what it actually means to care for someone's body that is having a different experience outside of um, out of outside of yeah. your own. That's a great point. Yeah. That conversation I haven't heard yet. But hearing you speak about it, 100%. Yeah. And, and HB 808 just gives doctors another leg to stand on 
to say, oh, I'm not treating you or I don't have to treat you the way that I should treat you right. as a black trans person or a black person that's assumed to be trans or queer. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't stop to figure it out. They just make a judgment, you know, and I, I think the bigger picture is that it, it is going to impact more than just trans and queer black people. And it's going to change the entire landscape of healthcare that's already been dismissive and harmful and dangerous for black people, black and brown people. So I think what you were bringing up is just such an important part of the conversation that more people need to be having. So I appreciate so much you being in this space and being vulnerable and being willing to talk about that because I know that it wasn't easy, you know. And so I I can't express to you how thankful I am that you are here to discuss that and bring those topics up. So we're going to wrap up here in a second. But before we go, um, is there anything else you want to share? Anything you want to talk about that we didn't touch on? You know, the space is yours and... You know, whatever. If you don't have anything, that's fine. But if you do have anything, please, you're welcome to share. Something about what you just said made me think of um, how gender affirming care is not something that only trans people access. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I was at the doctor and this woman was like, oh, I see that you're on testosterone. Me too. I took this shot that like, you know, it was necessary for this XYZ thing. And just like shared with me, just like off raft, like her her um, experience with um, taking testosterone shots um, for some, like something totally unrelated to right. like gender right. <laughs> at all. Like it was just something that she needed for her body yeah. to like regulate hormones. <laughs> right. um, and I feel like, I think that's also what's so comical about this, right? It's like comical and then also like really concerning. It's like, okay, what if a young person needs something that falls under the list of what they're considering gender affirming care right. and it's for nothing at all having to do with like their transness yeah. or not. Um, and like what what happens then? Right. That's a question that I'm definitely sitting with. Um, and then the last thing that I've been thinking about is like young folks and how this conversation feels like it's really encouraging me to like step back into a space of like, yeah, thinking about how I want to create space for young young trans folks. I was the camp director of a of a um, a music camp um, last summer, <laughs> last the summer before last, whatever band camp basically. Love that. <laughs> um, and it was a really really beautiful space. And this this one young person's parent kept reaching out to me like this. My my kiddo, my young person really like loved being with human space. They had never met a, a trans person like. This is a brown, a brown trans kid. Um, and they're like, they really like, when are you doing your next thing? Like how, like when are you creating your next space for queer and trans folks? We, they really, really want it. They really, really want it. They really, really need it. Mm. And they would text me like every other month, like, Hey, any, any progress on that, that space that you're, that you're creating. And I think this conversation is just making me think about, especially to our earlier points of like how to create spaces for the folks that, you know, need them. Um, when you're not necessarily a part of that community. Like, I'm not grown necessarily. Like, I'm 25, right? Like, I feel like in black years, you're not really grown until you're, like, 40, right? But, like, so I'm pretty young still, right? But, like, to create a young space for a young person, um, to create a space for a young person um, feels like a necessary and tall task. 
because I'm not necessarily a part of that community. I'm not in high school. I haven't been in high school for a while. And mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine like what it's like, what it feels like to be in school, primary school, right? secondary school right now. And I think what's really wild is the like the polarizing nature of like the beauty of so many queer and trans communities, like getting their shine and offering such beautiful information to the world about like how to talk about our communities, how to like engage folks. Um, The learning that you can do online alone right now is like really powerful. Like the access that is being created by often like black and brown queer and trans Mm -hmm. folks that are like creating spaces of language, spaces of really affirming like images, movies, books, all the things juxtaposed against a moment where the government is like backlashing to that. And it's a direct response. Like, oh, yeah. make no mistake about it. It's a right. direct response 100%. to the fact that queer and trans communities are being are being amplified, mm-hmm. right? And I think about how uh, jostling that must feel. I know what it feels like in my body, and it is really um, terrifying. That, like, yeah, the response to really any like when you think about it historically, like any like um, advancement in the way of liberation, especially when it's being held in black and brown communities, there is an immediate response, mm-hmm. an immediate yep. and really violent response that is committed by either government or um, government employed militia. And yeah, thinking about those tensions, like really rubbing against each other, I think for me signifies that liberation is we're actively mm-hmm. in, in the space of revolution and it's not going to be cute the whole time. Yeah. And I do wonder about like what spaces can we create? What, what bubbles of protection can we create around our young folks? Mm-hmm. And I know that I've already been tapped to like, to make that, mm-hmm. make those spaces to like, to be more diligent in, well, yeah, what work is what work am I doing outside of this conversation? Essentially, right. so I think this this conversation is reminding me of that, reminding me that young folks need us in this moment because there are also a lot of young folks that are standing up and doing this work and mm-hmm. having these really really hard conversations in ways that they definitely shouldn't have to, right? You know, and they're yeah. holding like they're holding an immense weight, and I I know and believe that us as folks who are young adults who are trans folks that when we don't have a lot of them but our trans elders Mm -hmm. i know that like we're all needed in like the way of like affirming them and supporting them so that they can make it to an elder or a young adult it's really really important right now um thinking a lot about how do we care for the mental and emotional well-being of our young queer and trans youth, especially our young black and brown trans youth who are already attending schools that are like existing in like, yeah, often the schools that black and brown folks attend are like more heavily policed mm-hmm. to like enforce rules. And so I can only imagine that like, again, having a government ratified decision that like directly targets a group of people that like the black and brown folks will get the worst of that because they exist in spaces that are already heavily policed in order to enforce rules. So again, just thinking a lot about like the call to action that I would have for folks is like, what are you doing to, one, first of all, be in community, be in relationship with Mm -hmm. young queer and trans folks, young 
queer and trans folks that are black and brown? Like what, what ways are you like having conversations with them about their identity and really talking to them as people? Because I think we're often not taught to engage with young folks as if they're people, right? right. Like we make decisions for them. This, this bill being like the prime example right. of someone like taking away the agency of a young person mm-hmm. um, and taking away their bodily autonomy. And yeah, so the call to action, I think, that I I would want to leave folks with is like who is in your community and how can you move yourself closer to the communities that you say that you want to support, you know, and really asking us those communities first, do you want my support? Is it okay that I'm here? Like what, what do you need? And also approaching from a space of like integrity in knowing that you have more work to do, more to learn, I'm saying that to myself and and everybody else too. Like, what does it mean to move in integrity with our young folks? I think it requires being in relationship with them mm-hmm. in a more intentional way to really like listen to them um, in a way that is clear that their government is not committed to. So how are we recommitting to them to show them that no matter what the fuck the government says, we gonna figure it out. You need that gender affirming care. How can how can I support you? How can I make sure that like you can have access to that? How am I fighting back? You know, how, what, what are the actions that we need to take? Yeah, in the way of creating support groups, writing advocacy letters, things like that. I don't know. I'm just thinking a lot about what ways that we need to show up as folks who are, as folks who have voting power mm. in this mm-hmm. world. Um, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not ever the one to be like, you need to vote because it's our thing. That's the way. But like, it's, it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was fantastic and beautiful. And I got a little emotional there, but- Wonderful. Um, I think that was a great place to leave this. That call to action, I think, was on point and it it needs to be said over and over and over again. Period. I'm so glad you said it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that this is where we wrap up. But again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, it was fantastic hearing your thoughts and your opinions. And and I just, I can't express how much I'm, I'm happy that you're here to talk with us. So yeah. thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. And, this was um, amazing. Yeah, thank you for your dedication and your energy and your time. Yeah. You're amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, King, for joining us today and lending us your time and your voice as a way to engage in these important conversations. Your perspective and your ongoing work provide so much insight, and we are thankful and appreciative that we were able to discuss such necessary topics with you today. The ACLU stands with Black and Brown communities, including transgender and non-binary people of color. The work for Black and Brown liberation cannot be done without a clear focus on this community. Even today, in 2024, racism and transphobia are rampant. We need to have these inclusive, enlightening, and informative conversations so that we can take positive steps towards a safer and more liberated future for all. Knowing each other, supporting and uplifting each other, and continuing to make space for transgender and non-binary voices of color are key ways to a brighter world without oppression. The ACLU of NC is committed to holding this space and to always celebrating black and brown transgender and non-binary communities. As we wrap up these past two episodes of This Is How, we encourage you to continue learning and talking about transgender and non-binary rights across the state of North Carolina. Pay attention to anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ legislation and politicians and take part alongside the ACLU and other LGBTQ and allied organizations in the movement for a safer future for all trans and non-binary North Carolinians. This is how you, we, and all of us together 
fight for transgender and non-binary rights. In our next episode, we will be having a conversation about the disorderly conduct law in schools across North Carolina. We will be joined by Carlton Powell, supervising attorney for the Legal Aid of North Carolina's Rights Education Project, and Michelle Delgado, staff attorney for the ACLU of North Carolina, to discuss school resource officers, their roles, their impacts on students, and some alternative solutions for safer schools across the state. Join us next time on This Is How. Thank you for joining This Is How, brought to you by the ACLU of North Carolina. If this episode resonates with you, we challenge you to take action. If you go to aclunorthcarolina.org, you'll find ways to donate and volunteer. Join us on social media as well. And if you like the show, share it with your network, subscribe on YouTube or podcast app, or give us a rating at ratethispodcast.com slash A-C-L-U-N-C. This episode was edited and produced by Ear Fluence. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon on This Is How.